Hello and welcome to Clinically Thinking, the podcast by clinical psychologists for clinical psychologists. And my name is Lisa Chandler and I'm host of Clinically Thinking. It's my pleasure today to welcome a new host to the program, Aaron Neves. Welcome aboard, Aaron. Great to speak with you today. Thank you, Lisa. It's really great to be here. I wonder whether you could um, tell us a little bit about yourself, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, how you came to volunteer to this role. Uh, Well, look, a little bit about myself. I'm a clinical psychologist. I studied in Adelaide and I work in Adelaide. At the moment, I'm very busy with uh, the directing of a company, private mental health company called May Health. We focus on psychological and medical integration. We also have a digital division. Keeps me very busy at the moment. Uh, In terms of the podcast, um, look, I was incredibly humbled when we when we first spoke about it the the podcast for me has been over the past five years it's been a a mainstay of uh, professional development interesting conversations direct to the experts in our field so to think that I might be able to contribute to that and give back in some way is um, very appealing to me and I'm humbled and you know very eager to to get into it that's terrific it's look it's fantastic to have another host who has the same kind of passion for educating uh, other clinicians in this kind of portable way. But I, I just love the idea of being able to to listen to something uh, like this, to listen to a podcast when you're walking or washing the dishes or, you know, at the gym. It's just that portable nature of it. It's just a fantastic way to do um, modern education. I think so too. I think you're right. The accessibility is incredible. Not only that, but the um, I think speaking to the person direct brings a whole new element to it. It's sort of like the difference between theory and practice, if you know what I mean. We can mm. read their papers, we can digest it that way. But having them elucidate upon it, go back and forward with us, really clear up a few things, I think that's been that's a remarkable element too, to get to know the people behind the research or the people behind the ideas has been something that has really come through in an incredible way in a, in a podcast format. I also um, consider myself, you know, the psycholo- the everyday psychologist and ask the questions that I want to ask and that I kind of think other clinical psychs might want to ask as well. And I'm hoping that uh, our uh, podcast meets that need to a certain extent as well. I think it does, Lisa. And I think, um, I mean, I've been a listener of the podcast for a long time and I think what you're talking about comes across and it's important for us to admit that in our field there's a lot that we we don't know. We have to sit with not knowing, with a not knowing stance quite a bit. And I think to have a have a I think the podcast itself is starting to fulfil uh, an important part of the Australian uh, psychological education landscape, really. Indeed. Um, and speaking of things that one might not know too much about, uh, brings me to ask about uh, this up-and-coming podcast of yours uh, with uh, Jonathan Shedler. I mm-hmm. have to admit to not doing very much about anything psychodynamic and so this is a great opportunity for me, you know, to learn some very basic information for me, you know, some good scaffolding around this area. Um, could you tell us a little bit then about uh, your guest? I'll be interviewing Dr. Jonathan Shedler. Now, this person has had a, a really profound int- uh, sort of impact on my my own career. Okay. Um, but uh, just a bit about him. He holds okay. an esteemed position as a clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California. Uh, but what he's really most known for is he he had a landmark paper in 2010 and uh, he it's called The Efficacy of Psychodynamic Psychotherapy. And what he did was he firmly established it as an evidence-based treatment in contemporary psychology. Uh, 
So he's very famous for that. Okay. Um, for me as well, he really sits at that cornerstone of, you know, between the art and science of, of what we do. Not only is he an academic researcher, but he's a master clinician. And that, um, you know, that for me is um, something that's been very helpful to have someone try to navigate that space. Well, that's fantastic because I have to say I'm not familiar with this paper and just for our listeners, we will uh, attach a link to it um, in the uh, Facebook page so that those of us who are not as well educated as you are, Aaron, can um, can read it because it sounds like it's a fantastic paper. So we look forward very much to hearing you interview Dr. Shedler later on this afternoon. That's Thank good. you, Lisa. I'm looking forward to it. really great to see you. Ah, good. You've been quite influential. I'm I'm about about 10 years into my career as a as a clinical psychologist, which happens to time roughly with your with your paper that we're going to talk about. I my background was in philosophy and and English and the humanities very much and so when I got into clinical masters, I was a little bit overwhelmed with the the hyper empiricism, I suppose. And I you know, something like a dynamic thing what I wasn't exposed to. We just weren't weren't taught that type of thing and it's through people like you and and uh your work really sort of moved me in that direction oh, well thank you i appreciate hearing that let's, yeah let's get on with it let's just jump right in i'm, I'm ready to go <clears throat> welcome to clinically thinking in our continued pursuit to bring insightful conversations to professionals in the field today we have a special guest dr jonathan shedler He's a celebrated academic and master clinician, renowned for his unique ability to blend rigorous research with clinical practice, especially in the field of psychodynamic psychotherapy. Dr. Shedler first made waves in the field in 2010 with his highly influential paper that not only provided a deep dive into what psychodynamic psychotherapy is, but established it as an empirically supported intervention. Our conversation today will build upon these important foundations. Dr. Shedler's contributions go beyond his seminal work on psychodynamic therapy. He has voiced strong concerns about the divide between academic researchers and practicing clinicians, and is an advocate for better integration between empirical findings and the hard-won wisdom that comes from clinical experience. Dr. Shedler has produced an impressive body of work that explores and attempts to resolve the foundational questions and tensions that plague contemporary psychology and the field of mental health. What is the nature of mental illness? What does it mean to be mentally well? Is the prevailing medical model adequately equipped to address the complexity of mental health problems? With unwavering candor, Dr. Shedler delves deep into the truth and nuance of these fundamental questions. So, whether you're a seasoned professional or new to the field, today's discussion with Dr. Jonathan Shedler promises to be a fascinating exploration of psychodynamic psychotherapy and more. Jonathan, welcome to Clinically Thinking. Hi. Good to be here. So, Jonathan, how did you first become interested in psychology and what drew you specifically towards psychodynamic therapy? I was always interested in psychology, even as a child. What I didn't understand, you know, I suppose like a lot of people, I actually didn't understand the difference between experimental psychology, academic psychology, and and psychoanalysis, which it turned out is what I was really interested in, but I didn't realize that was what it was called. So I ended up going to graduate school and studying 
academic psychology, research methods. It, it, it took a lot of doing because I didn't, you know, I didn't really know, I didn't know what the destination was. I didn't know what it was that I was looking for. It, it took me a lot of doing to find my way through the thicket of all the different facets of psychology to the part that, you know, was really fascinating to me, which is, which is the life of the mind and, you know, understanding how and why we become who we are and, and especially the role of, you know, the role of all of the things that we don't know about ourselves, the role of unconscious mental life in our day-to-day lives. Do you think that's a, do you think it's a, a common thing for people approaching psychology to not be entirely aware of the, the differences between the, the different kinds of psychology, academic and clinical? Um, yeah, I think I was unusually naive, but yes, I, I do think it's common because so much of academic psychology really deals with things that I think people aren't particularly interested in. It takes years of you know, sort of socialization to socialize people into becoming interested in the things that academic psychology researchers are doing. But so much of it is very, very far away from what, you know, what draws us to the field to begin with. How do we understand ourselves? How do we understand other people? How do we understand what happens in our relationships and in our interactions? You know, what, what goes wrong? You know, what about desires and wishes and, and how to live a life that, that feels good and feels meaningful? And the truth is that much of what academic psychology researchers study really has nothing to do with that. I think people go in, whether they know it, that this is what it's called or not, they go in looking for what psychodynamic psychology is actually about. They don't know it's called psychodynamic psychology. They get offered something else and, you know, and then they kind of get socialized into it. Well, this is, this is what psychology is. This is what I do. And there's a way I think we kind of betray ourselves, many of us, and I include myself, that, that we let what, you know, the interest that really drove us, we, we let them go by the wayside and we get caught up in other things. I can hear a little bit of, a little bit of frustration, a little bit of disappointment with academic psychology. Is that okay for me to, to hear that? Is that what, is that what's coming across? Oh yeah. I, I was, I mean, I was terribly disillusioned with, with academic psychology. I mean, I, I, um, you know, so for better or worse, I wasn't an undergraduate psychology major. I was incredibly naive about, you know, what, what is psychology? I thought it was the books that I, you know, grew up reading about the life of the mind, about unconscious mental life, about inner conflict, about passions, motives, and dreams. And, you know, I thought it was about understanding ourselves. And, um, you know, and I got into an academic psychology department and I'm like, good Lord, what, what's this? I mean, I was doing, you know, programming reaction time experiments people would see a, a stimulus on the screen and you know and, and push a button and like what, what does this have to do with psychology now what i thought was psychology was clinical psychology and more specifically psychodynamic clinical psychology but i didn't even know the word going in and how did you find your way into psychodynamic therapy given this background how did you find your way there well you know kind of 
dumb luck and a hard work. I mean, I ended up in a, I ended up in a, uh, in a graduate program, and and you can't even get this anymore. It just doesn't exist. It's been, it's been rooted out of existence. But I was in a rigorous, research-oriented academic psychology department that had, you know, a a, a serious, you know, clinical training program and a psychodynamically oriented clinical training program. And I hadn't entered through the clinical training program. I had entered through, I had entered through the research program and personality and just, you know, throughout the program, gravitating more and more to the clinical things because the things I was encountering in other areas of the program, and they were the sort of interesting, you know, kind of interesting, like, like solving a puzzle or playing chess is interesting, but it, it didn't really speak to the things that, you know, I cared about. You know, I'd grown, grown up reading books I thought were psychology books about, you know, about understanding ourselves, about the life of the mind, about unconscious mental processes, about dreams, desires, passion, yearnings, what goes wrong between people, why relationships don't go right. You know, basically, you know, why we feel uneasy in our own skin and the the bread and butter of clinical psychology. But I ended up in an academic department. It wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't a clinically oriented department. I didn't understand that there were psychologists who made an entire career who have never seen a patient in their lives ever. (laughs) People think, well, psychology, you go into the field of psychology, you know, and everybody gets a a sort of similar background and people get training and, you know, treating patients and clinical work and perhaps they branch in different directions and some become researchers and some become clinicians or practitioners. That's actually not how it works. The field is completely bifurcated. There's a sharp division between, between clinical practice on the one hand and research on the other. The people who are doing academic psychology research have never been trained in doing the work of psychotherapy. Most of them have never seen a patient in, in their entire lives. And that includes the academic psychologists who are doing research on clinical topics and speaking as if they were experts about psychotherapy, but they're really not psychotherapists. And, and the world doesn't know this. Right? It, it's called the science practice schism. And we've got researchers doing work, presumably for the benefit of clinicians and patients. And most clinicians find it absolutely irrelevant to what they do. And then the other side of it is where you've got clinicians with years, decades of experience, actually the cumulative knowledge of generations of, of clinical practitioners, you know, cumulative knowledge handed down, passed on from generation to generation. You know, we've learned a few things over the past century of trying to you know, help people with mental and emotional problems. And by and large, academic psychologists are completely uninterested in it. They couldn't care less what real clinical practitioners have to say. So, you know, we have clinicians and researchers kind of in in separate silos. They don't share the same concepts. They don't share the same vocabulary. They don't have the same background. They can't even have a conversation and understand one another. And that's the state Mm. of the field in psychology. Do you you know something about the history of the science practice schism? How did it become so... So how did this become so wide? 
Well, psychology started, at my understanding, psychology started as a, as it had nothing to do with psychotherapy. Psychology started as a scientific discipline. It goes back to, um, it goes back to the work, I think the first experimental psychologist officially was Wilhelm mm -hmm. Wundt in Leipzig, Germany. He was studying sensation and perception, right? You know, auditory perception, visual perception, what's the relationship between, you know, physical stimuli and, you know, and how we perceive them. And psychotherapy was the purview of, of physicians, of psychiatrists. And uh, I, I believe historically psychologists first, you know, had an entry into the world of clinical practice through psychological testing. Psychologists became experts in tests and measurement, measuring, measuring psychological phenomena, measuring psychological traits, measuring personality, measuring intelligence, you know, measuring various aspects of mental functioning. So you would get psychologists who are experts in testing and assessment and they were basically there would be consultants to psychiatrists who did the actual therapy so the psychiatrist might order a, a test you know the way a physician a physician might order a, a, a blood test or a lab test and the psychologist would participate by contributing you know information uh, i i think clinical psychology at least in the, in the united states i'm not not sure in um i'm not sure in your country it really came into being as its own discipline in um, after the war, after World War II, when there was an enormous number of returning servicemen coming back from the war with all kinds of, you know, mental health issues, and there weren't enough psychiatrists you know, to meet the demand. Right, psychiatrists did psychotherapy, not psychologists. But, but after the war, psychologists began training to be psychotherapists and to do the work that previously that previously psychiatrists had done. Uh, and, and that was really the birth of clinical psychology as a profession. And of course, psychiatry at that time was very much steeped in a, a psychoanalytic tradition, you know, going all the way back to, to, to Freud. And psychologists started to become involved in that, to learn how to work with patients. Now, of course, academic psychology went in an entirely different way for historical reasons that we could talk about. Academic psychologists hate, came to hate everything connected with psychoanalysis. I mean, they, they, they couldn't wait for opportunities to debunk it in any way they could and to, um, you know, and promote alternative approaches that, you know, often, you know, were based in laboratory research, but not based in experience working with human beings in the mm. real world. What, why do you think there was that disdain? You know, why not try to study it academically? Why not try to study it empirically? Well, there was blame to go around on both sides. You know, for one thing, at least in the United States, um, psychoanalysis became very exclusive, exclusionary. Um, it became, it came to be considered as a medical specialty. Training was not at least officially open to psychologists. It was only open to medical doctors. Uh, and, you know, there were quite a few psychologists who were very interested in studying psychoanalytic concepts and practicing psychoanalytically. And, you know, they get the door slammed in their face. So, you know, the psychoanalytic world became very insular, 
right, elitist, full of themselves. They had a, a disdain collectively for scientific research, for empirical research, which of course psychologists, you know, trained as, a, as an experimental discipline, were very invested in, that was very central to their identity. I mean, you know, people were looking all the time and, and people were, were, doing, were doing it. Can we do research on psychoanalytic ideas? Can we put them to a test? Which of course was you know, vitally important work to do, but it was met with a kind of disdain from the psychoanalytic medical establishment. So you know, what, what happened was you know, psychoanalysis succeeded in alienating generations of academic psychologists and and making enemies of them unnecessarily and and you know to some extent that's that's past history but to some extent we're still dealing with the legacy of that mm. in 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 the field mm. i run into this every day i mean i mean i straddle the world of you know of clinical research and actual you know clinical practice and you know i see how in the translation or the transition from a, you know, a, a clinical idea to what happens in the research laboratory, it gets turned into something that, that from my point of view as a practicing clinician, is just, is trivial and, and embarrassing. So the, the legacy of this scientific science practice schism is still with us very much in the field of psychology. There's something parallel in the field of psychiatry too. I mean, I mean biology has, has, you know, all but, rooted out psychotherapy based on a relationship. And people go to often go to psychiatrists hate when I say this, but it's true enough that it needs to be said. You know, that the, the chances are if you go to your average psychiatrist, you're going to come away with a DSM diagnosis and a prescription. And the idea of creating a relationship to talk to understand the idea that the person's difficulties have meanings and those meanings can be explored and understood. And through that understanding, something can change, can alleviate symptoms. We can help free people from reliving the same old patterns over and over again. You know, that's been largely lost from psychiatry. Unfortunately, it's also been largely lost from psychology. So, so in some ways, the the complexity, the nuance, the the humanness, let's say, has has really been considered sort of an extraneous variable. It's kind of um, been left out of these experiments. I, I I think that's true, and that may be the dividing line. And you know, this maybe isn't the most um, gracious way to talk about it, but you know, I think there's what I think of real therapy or legitimate psychotherapy, which is a process of exploration, right? The, the, right? the goal of this kind of work is for both people, therapists and patients, to come to know the patient you know, more fully, not as a diagnostic category, not as a list of symptoms, but to know them more fully as a human being, to know them psychologically, who, are they? What is their inner experience? What is their internal world like? You know, it, it, the, what is their 
what is their subjective experience of themselves, of other people, of the world, of relationships? Right? So it's a process of getting to know the person so that the person can come to know themselves more fully and be more whole and live their life more freely, not so constrained by, you know, patterns that were formed through past past experience or early experience. So when I say meaningful therapy, real psychotherapy, what I mean is psychotherapy that has that goal in mind. Now, there are other kinds of psychological treatment, other kinds of therapy, where the focus is on less about exploring, getting to know something, understanding something, and more about interventions and techniques you know focused on specific symptoms so it's the difference between it's the difference between seeing your patient as you know a, a sort of mechanism to act upon well you have these symptoms here's the cause i'm going to intervene in this way right there's a, a kind of a it's a kind of a one directional relationship i'm the doctor and i'm going to act upon you you're going to tell me what's wrong and i'm going to figure out you know, what you should do and, you know, when proceed with the treatment plan based on my understanding versus two people collaborating together, you know, not to fix something off the bat, but to understand something. It's a very, very different way of working, right? So we could say a didactic approach to therapy or a medical model approach to therapy versus an exploratory approach. The, um, you know, the, the proponents of the medical model and the, the strategic approaches, they, they would say, look, we've got evidence for this. We've got empirical evidence for this and it works and it's it's shorter term and we get results. So why, why, why wouldn't somebody do that? Why wouldn't they take that option? Well, what, I don't know if you say this in Australia, but they're selling you a snow job. Okay. And I'll tell you why, and I would be very happy to go into the details of it, because there's a rhetoric about what research shows is effective and there's the reality and there's a <laughs> huge gap between the rhetoric about what research shows versus what research actually shows. So, you know, we'll go into the details to the extent that you want, but when people say, here's this short-term treatment, it happens in six sessions or eight or 12 sessions, it's done, evidence shows it works, this is scientifically tested, this is scientifically proven. Let me just say flat out, it is just plain not true it it's based it's based on research sleight of hand and and i would be happy to go into exactly what i mean by that but we the field the profession have been selling each other and selling our patients a, a bill of goods oh based on smoke and mirrors because what the patient cares about, and the only thing the patient should care about is, I'm not doing well. Am I going to get well? Is this going to change my life, you know, in a meaningful way that sets things on a better trajectory? But then we have academic researchers who define the purpose of therapy and mean something very different. And patients didn't get a say in redefining the goals of therapy to, you know, to fit into, uh, you know, a peg into a square hole defined by their research methods. 
that has very little to do with pe what people actually come to therapy wanting. So the the way in which the psychotherapy research is conducted, you've you've got a you've got some issues with that. You've got a critique of that. The the measures that he used. Well, hell yeah, I yeah. Do. The the measures that he used. I think what you're saying, if I can try to really summarize a little bit, is that it lacks generalizability or what we might call ecological validity, that the, the clinician, the patient might have a different outcome in mind from what the researchers have in mind. Well, it, yeah, if you want to talk like an academic researcher, yes, ecological validity. If you want to talk like a regular person, this is, you know, we're, we're studying where the therapy works. Are the things that you're studying relevant? to what I, as a patient, as a suffering human being who is looking for help, are they relevant to the things that are meaningful to me? And I would say, you know, often the answer is no. Yeah, sure. I mean, let's I mean, open it up. Let's, so. let's get into this. There are studies, right? There are studies. You can ask people, what do you want from psychotherapy? So first of all, humans don't experience themselves carved out into DSM diagnostic categories. Right? We are not generalized anxiety disorder or major depressive disorder. We're a human being and anxiety or depression is part of our experience as a, as a human being. But, you know, <laughs> we don't go to psychotherapy. You know, people just, just don't fall neatly into DSM categories. If you ask people why they're going to psychotherapy, you know, well, you know, I'm depressed, I want to feel better. I'm anxious, I want to feel better. That's in the mix, but it's part of a mix. It's not the entirety. You know, let, let, let's walk through this. A patient comes to you with major depression, which is you know pretty common, common diagnosis. I've been practicing for more than 30 years. I cannot think of a single time in my entire life that a patient has ever come to me and said, you know, hey, doc, you know, I'm, I'm doing well in my life. I find meaning and meaning and purpose in my work. I find meaning and fulfillment in my relationships or connections with friends, family. You know, I have a satisfying, I'm in a satisfying relationship with a partner. I have a good sex life. You know, I, I feel engaged in, in the world. I, I just, I just came down with this case of depression, you know, just, you know, make it go away. As if depression were something like, you know, influenza, <laughs> you know, just, right. The things that get diagnosed in the DSM, like depression or anxiety, are, they're not encapsulated problems. They're woven mm -hmm. into the fabric of the person's life. So you get to know them and you find out, well, you know, there, there's difficulties in how they connect with people. They have relationships, but there's something about the relationships that don't work. Uh, maybe they have inhibitions. Something holds them back in life. There's, there's a way that they you know, trip over their own feet or get in their own way in pursuing the things they want. Maybe there's something inside them that says, no, you, you, don't, get to, you don't get to pursue the things you want. You know, it's not all right. It's something inside. When we treat somebody in therapy and we do meaning, meaningful therapy, we're not looking, you know, through the lens of what's their diagnosis. We're looking through the lens of who are they as a person? How are they functioning in the world? What are the life patterns that they keep living out repetitively, not necessarily even realizing it? What are the ways they get in their own way? What are the ways they inhibit or interfere with their own capacity for pleasure? What are the ways they interfere with their own capacity for meaningful connections and relationships? 
right? And we understand, you know, we could think of depression as, as a, a fever. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the psychological equivalent of fever. What, what is fever? Fever is a nonspecific response to an enormous range of underlying, you know, possible conditions from the common cold to Ebola, right? So fever is an effect, not a cause. It's an effect of something else that needs to be treated. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we need to manage the fever too. <laughs> you know, aspirin, you know, aspirin, ice, whatever it is, sometimes you urgently need to reduce someone's fever, but that's not the entirety of treatment. The, the treatment is, well, you know, it's a response to something. What's, what's, what's causing it? That's what we need to treat. How serious is it? Will it run its own course? Does it need medical intervention? If so, what kind? So the analogy to me in psychotherapy is someone comes in with anxiety or depression, those are the psychological equivalents of fever. That is to say, they are nonspecific psychological responses to an enormous range of potential underlying difficulties. And what we want to do is help the person with those underlying difficulties in a way that shifts the trajectory of their life for the better. Now, that's one way of looking at it. That's how I look at it, you know, versus the goal, the sole goal, the, the only goal of therapy is to reduce your depression score on a depression rating scale in the immediate short run. And I don't even care what happens in six months or a year, or let alone longer. You know, I've got a short term minimal improvement. Your score in this scale rating scale changed by, you know, two or three points out of 50 points. And now I'm going to, you know, declare a victory lap because I've shown a three point difference, you know, compared to a control group that gets nothing. Right. And say, this is scientifically proven treatment. No, it, it, it's only proven if we accept, if we accept the terms of you, you know, this very artificial definition you've constructed of what the, the purpose of the work. The purpose of the work is not just to temporarily alleviate, you know, your most acute symptoms of depression or anxiety. It's not a balm or a salve. Salve. The purpose of the work is to change something fundamental about you so that you don't have to continue going through life, you know, vulnerable to these kinds of difficulties. And that's a very different way of looking at psychotherapy. And that's part of the science practice divide. I would say, you know, scientists look at it through the lens of a research design. Practicing clinicians look at it through the lens of human beings and the human difficulties we treat day in and day out, and they don't line up. Mm -hmm. Now, now that's half the story. <laughs> uh, you know, when I said people are being sold a bill of goods, here's where it gets interesting, and I've written about this at, at, at length. The researchers are looking at group differences and what they're looking at, I mean, the, the, the standard you know, research design is what's called a randomized control trial, right? So you get a group that gets the treatment that the researcher is invested in, you know, the treatment the researcher is invested in, you know, showing it works and some kind of control group. And generally the control group gets no treatment at all, or you could say no meaningful treatment at all. And what they're looking for is, is there a statistically significant difference on average between the group average for the treatment group and the group average for the control group? Is it statistically significant? Now, statistically significant is a term of art. It doesn't mean what anyone thinks it means. Basically, it means 
you know, is there a difference that probably just didn't just happen by chance? You know, like, 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 you know, drawing different colored marbles out of a bag, you know, it's 50-50, you know, 50-50 white and black marbles, you know, well, it's never going to come out exactly 50-50. If I keep reaching into the bag, you know, by the time I get done, I'm going to, you know, if I grab a handful of marbles, it's going to have more black or more white, right? So you get, right? So, so you get a difference between black and white marbles that's due to pure chance. Statistical significance means, you know, there's enough of a difference that it probably didn't happen just by chance alone. Now, what on God's green earth does that have to do with whether patients get well and feel themselves to be better off? It has very little to do with that. But let's play devil's advocate and look at it through the lens of the research, research lens. A statistically significant difference between a treatment group and a control group does not mean that people get well. What does the research tell us? Right? So not does one group differ from the other, but do people change enough? If, if we accept the researcher's definition that the only purpose of psychotherapy is to change your score on the depression scale, right? so that if say you're in a major depressive episode, you 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 remit. Like I mean, what what else would it mean to get well? Right? You're no longer suffering from diagnosable depression. And we can ask a different question that researchers don't focus on, and that question is: Okay, forget about statistical significance and the group statistical significance and the group difference between the treatment and the control group. What percentage of people who get the treatment get well? Right? meaning they have remission from the DSM diagnosis they're being treated for and, and stay well you know, for some reasonable you know, time period going forward. Because right? no one cares or no one should care. Are you feeling better you know, the day treatment ends? What we care about is are you feeling better as you go forward in your life? So one problem with research is we'd focus on immediate short-term results. You know, the, the, the best you'll ever do is you'll ever look as the day treatment ended and you, know, you start deteriorating from then on. But <laughs> researchers take a victory lap and say, hey, look, there's a difference between the treatment and control group. Mm. I, anyway, I digress. What percentage of people get well and stay well? And I'm going to use a very modest you know, definition of stay well. It's like, you know, do you remit and stay remitted? even for a year. And we know the answer. The same, the very same studies that, that academic researchers are pointing to and saying eight to 12 sessions or 16 sessions at the most of psychotherapy is scientifically proven. Actually, the exact same studies tell us that these treatments fail most people most of the time. And we put numbers on that. Among people who get these, what you're talking about is manualized therapy, right? brief, manualized, focused therapy. So manualized CBT for major depressive disorder, the most common, commonly studied disorder. Here's what we actually know. 70 to 75% of the people who get these short-term focused treatments either don't improve at all or improve and relapse quickly. So at least seven out of 10 of the people who get these so-called proven treatments do not improve or relapse quickly. 
no, I suppose you could be a glass half empty or glass half full sort of person. And you say, well, seven out of 10 didn't get well and stay well, but look, we helped three out of 10. Okay, you know, fair enough. But that's not the messaging that's going out. The messaging that's going out is these are evidence-based treatments. These are scientifically proven treatments. This is the standard of care. This is the gold standard. And when you take that rhetoric and you take it out in public to the general public, to policymakers, government policymakers, those words, when you say this is evidence-based treatment, people think that this means that meaningful numbers of people are getting meaningfully better. And it's flat out a lie. The research shows that the majority of people do not get well and stay well. So when I say we're selling people a bill of goods about what research shows, that's, that's what I, I mean. Can I can I add to that? I, I understand the message going to the to the public. Could I also add that it can put a bit of pressure on a clinician as well if the expectation is that people are going to be to be better in a in a very short period of time by applying what you call manualized therapies. Is that fair to say that that can be a stressful situation to be in? Yes, because it's putting clinicians in an impossible position. And we're telling the clinicians, we're telling the clinicians, science shows that this is effective. The clinicians now have the experience. Right? Well, it doesn't seem to be effective. A lot of my patients are not satisfied. They're not doing better without doing enough better. So they're kind of clinicians that end up kind of between a rock and a hard place, especially if they you know, want to be evidence-based and they believe the science except they're getting a very distorted view of the science. A statistically significant finding in a, in a randomized control trial does not mean people are getting better. So yeah, the clinicians end up in, in, in between a rock and a hard place. And then one of two things happens. If, if you're, you know, do your work with integrity, if you make connections with, with patients, if you get to know them, really start to understand them. Now you're in a very demoralizing position. You're saying, I can do better than this. I could help people better. And I'm working in a system that doesn't permit that and is telling the patients otherwise and telling me otherwise. It's very difficult to live with that level of demoralization. Or cognitive dissonance kicks in. We start finding ways to convince ourselves that the treatment we've provided, you know, is really good enough after all. All it's It's a short step, you know, psychologically from... I'm not providing optimal care, but, you know, this is good enough for most people most of the time. It's kind of a short step to that because we don't want to live with that feeling of the moral injury of feeling like we're not doing right by people. And then once we get to this, well, you know, I'm doing the best I can within this system and the limitations. It's really okay for most people. And then it's another just short step from there to, no, actually, this is the right way to treat people. This is the standard of care. So I think, you know, I think clinicians who work in agencies and work in this system, I think clinicians find themselves in 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 a terrible bind. listening to Clinically Thinking, where the best therapists and the best thinkers in clinical psychology share their knowledge and experience with clinicians worldwide. 
learn about upcoming episodes and find out more about our guests by following the Clinically Thinking Facebook page. Now back to the show. One of the things that I that I took from your work, I know we were talking before the show about this, is in some ways what you brought to those clinicians is the the evidence base for psychodynamic therapy. In some ways you 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 did bring it, um, you you made it so that a clinician can say, well, I am practicing in an evidence-based way in the academic language. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So right. So this is part of the the ideology rather than the science. The ideology is these brief manualized treatments have been proven effective. Uh, you know, psychodynamic therapy is not evidence based. It's not scientifically tested. You know, it doesn't it doesn't have it doesn't have the evidence of benefits. And that's complete nonsense. That's that's rhetoric and ideology that has nothing to do with what the science actually shows. Right. So at this point, we have now, now what is true is that other therapies, especially CBT, have been studied a great deal more. There are many more studies. But, you know, the, the, there's a point of diminishing returns. You know, if 10 studies, you learn a certain amount. 100 studies, you feel a little more confident. 1,000 studies, you know, maybe it's overkill, but they're all showing the same thing. Great. 5,000 studies? Have we actually learned, you know, <laughs> have we actually learned, you know, 5,000 things more than, than, than we knew when we had 100 studies? You know, so there are a lot more studies just because there's more funding available and there's more interest in CBT among academic researchers who do studies. I mean, you know, academic researchers are going to study what interests them. Right? So, you know, what interests them are things that are easy to operationalize, to manualize, to study under controlled laboratory conditions. Right? So, you know, what gets studied is, is determined by a lot of factors other than well, but what's really most promising from the patient's point of view or from the working, practicing psychotherapist's point of view? So, you know, the fact that there's more studies is neither here nor there. That said, I mean, we have over, as of today, we have over 300 rigorously conducted randomized control trials of psychodynamic therapy, right? The findings are absolutely consistent. It is consistently shown to be effective treatment as effective, every bit as effective as, you know, CBT, you know, comparable, comparable duration. So anybody who says that, you know, well, CBT is evidence-based, it's scientifically proven, and psychodynamic therapy is not, one is that the person is uninformed and is actually not an expert in this area. They're just repeating a narrative they've heard. That's the more charitable explanation. The other is they're willfully misleading people because they have their own ideological investments. So, you know, is it, is it, is it being uninformed or is it being disingenuous? You know, I don't know. Some combination of both, I imagine, depending on who you're talking to. So anyway, to go back to your, your point, yeah, we have research we have research on the benefits of, you know, I, this is important to qualification. In research trials, people tend to study relatively short-term treatments. These short-term treatments, you know, nobody has consistently been able to find differences in outcome 
between any you know legitimate mainstream bona fide form of psychotherapy and any any other form of psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. The dodo bird. It's called the dodo bird effect, right? The the term comes from Alice in Wonderland for readers who who you know don't know the the reference and uh, a character in Alice in Wonder that there, there's a race and and and. Just someone declares all have won and all must win, all must have prizes, mm. right? So when you rigorously compare different modalities of psychotherapy to each other in in a you know in a controlled research setting, there's no scientific basis whatsoever for saying one is more effective than the other. So you know all you can say really a scientifically honest statement is. Well, when we do very short-term structured manualized therapy, whether it's CBT or psychodynamic or IPT, interpersonal therapy, any, any you know, established modality of, of, of psychotherapy, what we can say scientifically is all of these treatments have been shown to have benefits, at least in the relative short term, in controlled research trials. There's not a sound basis for choosing between them. But let's broaden that a bit because I would argue, coming back around to the point I made before, the research trials are a very fake and artificial view of what ought to be happening in psychotherapy. So for one thing, nearly all of the research trials that we have that are manualized treatments, right, that are conducted by following an instruction manual, none of them are long enough for meaningful therapy to begin. So, um, there's a, a Dutch researcher who's published many meta-analyses of you know, research outcomes for depression specifically. And, and he's got a, a database of you know, hundreds of controlled trials studying depression with different treatment modalities. But the typical length of treatment is 8 to 12 sessions. It's not a scientific finding that treatment is effective in 8 to 12 sessions. That was an assumption the researchers made before they ever collected any data whatsoever. They didn't say, let's look at psychotherapy in the real world. Let's put some parameters around how long does it really seem to take? What can clinicians tell us about how long effective treatment, you know, how long effective treatment really takes in the real world, you know, on average, what do patients tell us, right? Because we know the answers to those questions. We have some pretty good you know, numbers around parameters about how long therapy takes for meaningful benefits. Just, Is this a dose response? It's a dose, yeah, there's a dose response. Okay, okay. We know how long psychotherapy should take. People doing these randomized control trials completely disregard that. They could care less about what we know from treating real patients. They just arbitrarily decide, well, this will be a 12-session treatment. And that is not a scientific finding, right? That was an assumption of the researchers. And then they go out in public and say, well, science shows that, you know, eight session or 12 session treatment is, is always as optimal. No, science did not show that. You decided that before you started doing science. Uh, Jonathan, something relevant, very relevant to the Australian context at the moment is the dose response relationship. If you could talk about that a little bit, I know you've done some work on that. I'd really like to hear yeah. your insights. So, a, a dose-response relationship means that um, it, it means that uh, how well you get depends on how much therapy you get, and we have 
a great deal of information about this, which incidentally, you know, psychotherapy researchers who are pushing these brief manualized therapies have ignored and continue to ignore. So if you want to know, you know, the, right, the question really is, you know, on, on average, in general, what are the parameters? Like how long is it, does it take for therapy to start to have meaningful benefits for most people, for the average person? There's three ways of going about answering that question. You can ask patients who've had psychotherapy. You can, you can ask the clinicians who have provided psychotherapy. And you can look at research that tracks, uh, that tracks change, that tracks progress, you know, session by session under naturalistic conditions and says, you know, well, how long does it take before there's a, a meaningful change for, uh, you know, a meaningful number of people? Now, fortunately, the numbers from these different ways of it, trying to answer the question you know, converge so we can say some things with a great deal of confidence. So the first study that um, really asked patients was the Consumer Reports study. Consumer Reports is a consumer magazine that evaluates products <laughs> like automobiles. But they applied their methods to, to study psychotherapy. It was about 25 years ago. They partnered with a you know, famous uh, psychology researcher, Martin Seligman, who's famous for his work, mostly uh, most famous for his work on learned helplessness. And so a, a major, you know, card carrying, hardcore empirical scientist. Um, they surveyed, I think, uh, I'm going to say off the top of my head, uh, about 4,000 of their readers who had participated in psychotherapy and they asked them in various ways, how satisfied was with you? How satisfied were you with the therapy? Did you get the benefits that you wanted? And, and how long was the treatment? Now, the really interesting thing was most people did get the benefits that they wanted. And they, they concluded, at least according to patient report, uh, that psychotherapy was enormously helpful across across the board, including for people who, you know, who, who saw themselves as having the, the most serious problems, who were in the worst shape to begin with. Um, but they found a very clear dose-response relationship. And what they said is they ended up recommending, based on the, the findings from the survey of thousands of patients, is um, it takes about a year, recommend about a year on average for people to get the benefits they want out of treatment and the benefits continue to accrue until about two years. So the conclusion of this you know, survey, again, you know, 25 years ago, was you know, for most people most of the time, think about one to two years as a realistic duration for therapy. Now, does that mean that there aren't some people with acute problems, crises, you know, could they get by, could, could you know, could, a few sessions at the right moment in their life make an enormous difference. Well, you know, sure, of course. I mean, nobody can say in advance how much treatment is a, a specific person is going to need. What we can say is, on average, this is what we know from what patients report. Now, other researchers did studies where they um, where they asked clinicians, and, and those in some ways were a bit more methodologically rigorous. They divided the clinicians according to their theoretical orientation. You know, what if psychodynamic therapy takes way, way longer? You know, in in the in the 
in the view of therapists than CBT. You know, so they, they sliced and diced the data lots of ways. But what, what was really important is they basically said to the clinicians, think of the last patient that you treated where you absolutely, in your view and the patient's view both, had a successful outcome where the patient got a meaningful, what you both believe is a meaningful benefit out of therapy that you, know, that you think that you think is going to make a lasting difference in, in their lives. The answers, they varied somewhat for, for modality of, of, of therapy, but you know, it was about 40 sessions, about a year, right? About a year of weekly treatment. And, you know, with a, a little variation, the, the general parameters were, were generally true, regardless of the therapist identified treatment modality. You know, and the reason that's true is the rate limiting factor in psychotherapy is not the brand of therapy or the interventions. There's a certain rate at which psychological change is possible. The rate limiting factor is the fact that we're human. That's how. So, assuming a weekly frequency, a weekly frequency. Most of this was weekly frequency. Most of it. There, there might have been some with more. So, you know, I said there's three ways of, of, you know, asking the question. You can ask patients, you can ask clinicians, or you can actually track therapy. You know, measure people at, you know, at at intervals and and look at psychological change using standardized tests. And um, there was a very large study. The lead author was Michael Lambert, who's a major therapy researcher. Mm-hmm. He's at Brigham Young University here in the United States. It was published in the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology, top tier, top tier journal. They looked at a nationwide sample of over ten thousand therapy patients. Ten thousand. They tracked them over time using an outcome measure uh, called the Outcome Questionnaire 45 or OQ 45, which is you know still a widely used measure. The patients took the test periodically as the treatment progressed. And what they did is they calculated statistically before they started how much change met their criteria for what they called clinically significant change. Right? Enough change to say something is shifting psychologically. Right? Now, and it's important just to emphasize clinical, clinically significant change by their definition doesn't mean the patient is well. It doesn't mean the patient was satisfied with their treatment. It means things have shifted enough that we can say, yeah, you know, a meaningful difference has occurred. I mean, so this is purely empirical. Track the patients over time, measure change. How many sessions does it take for 50%, half of the people, to experience clinically significant change, which was defined, you know, up, up front. And the answer was it, it, it took about 21 sessions or six months of weekly therapy for 50% of the patients not to get well, but to start to show you know, significant change. So it took 40 or so sessions or about a year, almost a year of weekly therapy for 75% of the patients to see clinically significant change, not to be well, just to change, you know, just to, for something to start to shift psychologically, you know, in a way that, that is, you know, sort of statistically justifiable. And those are the realistic, realistic parameters 
for how long therapy is going to take for most people most of the time. We're talking about averages. Now, what do researchers studying so-called evidence-based treatments do? Right. Well, six months is the minimum. That's, you know, that's when change begins to happen. Say, oh, no, we'll just decide up front this is an eight-session treatment or a 12-session treatment or in, you know, sometimes once in a while, you know, unusually in the treatment of depression, we'll go, go for 16 sessions. All of these research-based treatments are over before meaningful therapy can even begin. I think that's very important, setting the expectation. Would it be fair to say that that expectation isn't set very well? Perhaps it isn't very clear when people enter therapy how long it might take, and could we do better? No, it's not that we're not. It's not that we're setting the expect, not setting the expectation well. We're 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 misleading people, and we're setting a false expectation. We're telling people, you know, here's this manualized evidence-based treatment it's you know according to the manual it's it's a it's a 12 session treatment this treatment has proven effectiveness and now terrible things happen and the, the terrible things are people go into therapy with this expectation that you know they're going to be well that you know this is a proven treatment they're getting the gold standard of care that you know they're going to get what they need from it and most patients most of the time do not get what they need and, and here's the real tragedy of it. And I've seen this as a clinician hundreds, if not thousands of times. The patients don't go away thinking I didn't get adequate treatment. I didn't get good enough treatment. I didn't get enough treatment. That's not what they come away thinking. They come away thinking one of two things. They think I'm so broken and defective that I'm beyond the reach of treatment. And now we've done serious damage, right? If we're talking about the most common, commonly diagnosed condition, which is depression, you know, part of depression is, is feeling hopeless and helpless. And the person finally, you know, overcomes their inertia. You know, maybe they have to psychologically move mountains internally just to get themselves to the point where they say, okay, I'm, I'm going to try. I'm, I'm going to go look for help. I'm going to ask for help. I'm, I, and then they go to the treatment, they don't get well, or they don't get well and stay well for very long, and they come away completely demoralized. Right? And now they're, right, these are people who, most of these people who could, in fact, be helped with good mm -hmm. therapy. We know that's true, right? But they go away feeling that there's no help for it. I agree, and the clinician can be demoralized as well if they had the expectation that they're going to fix this person rather quickly well the clinician may not see that though and we can talk about that the clinician doesn't get that follow-up information but, but the other alternative is the patient right one alternative is the patient comes away feeling horrible about themselves and worse now they're harder to treat you know or the patient comes away feeling that psychotherapy is nonsense psychotherapy doesn't work I hear this all the time. Patients come in when I worked in an outpatient clinic where I saw, you know, thousands of patients. I didn't, I didn't treat them all personally, but I oversaw the case. I met the patients and they'll come in and say, well, I've had psychotherapy. It doesn't work for me. You say, well, what kind of psychotherapy have you had? And you find out they've had, you know, very brief, you know, so-called evidence-based, which, which really means, you know, de facto evidence-based is a code word for brief and manualized, which means that treatment is conducted according to an instruction manual, you find out they've had that. And they don't come away and saying, well, brief manualized treatment doesn't work for me. They come away and say, psychotherapy doesn't work for me. So we're doing 
doing harm. I understand. So I just want to summarise a little bit. One of the things I've really taken from this, well, there's a couple of things. One is that we really can't treat disorders in absence of the people in which they live. The The, the second thing that, that I've really taken, it, and I think what you're saying is that the academic researchers that are studying the brief manualised therapy, it's not what you'd consider to be psychotherapy. It's something else. It's something like educational strategies. It's something like a, a, a guide or a good way to live. It's sort of like guided, you know, guided help, self-help, you know, didactic, you know, didactic, uh, you know, skills training. So it's not that it's wrong. It's not that the studies are wrong. They're just not studying what you would consider to be or the outcome measures are not complex enough and not sort of considered enough to be capturing what you'd consider to be psychological therapy, but it's called psychological therapy. There's often a T in the, in the acronym, the alphabet therapies, the CBTs, the DBTs, the, the, the schemas, those types of things are called therapies, but it's missing something. I think that's what you're really saying to me today. You're saying it's missing... Uh, the complexity, the nuance, the human element that happens in psychotherapy. And if I come a bit full circle here, is it right to say that's what drew you to psychodynamic therapy because it's it's got those things? Well, yeah, of, 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 yeah, of course, because the, the essence of psychodynamic therapy is that there's more. There's more than meets the eye. Please elaborate. Please tell me. You know, you could ask some, somebody anything about themselves. Ask ask a patient, a, you know, a question. You know, what does this mean to you? What are your thoughts about this? What feelings come up when you, you know, tell me this? How do you understand this about yourself? And they will give you an answer that's true. And then you can say, well, tell me some more. Can Can you go on? Um, help me understand that more. Say more. And the patient will tell you something else and something different that's also true. And you continue that process. Well, let's follow your thoughts. Let's see what comes up. Let, let, let's see what else occurs to you. And they'll elaborate and they'll tell you something different again that's also true. So the idea is there's there's levels of experience and 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 levels of knowing and when you ask people you know to, to discuss themselves there are certain things that are very close to the surface of consciousness that you can get very readily for the asking you'll get an answer it's not a false answer right I, I mean they're not trying to deceive you or themselves they're telling you something that they experience is true but it's a partial answer. There's a level of understanding below that, right? That is not quite as close to the surface of consciousness. And there's a level of understanding below that. And if you think, you know, like this is really rooted and in, in, you know, in, interwoven in these manualized evidence-based therapies, if you think that you can solve, you know, entrenched, long-standing, ingrained problems by working with you know, what's at the surface of consciousness, well, then I guess it makes sense to do therapy that's based on, you know, manuals and worksheets and short time, you know, short, short time durations. If you think that what drives us you know, is more than what's readily accessible on the surface, then that's an entirely different approach to therapy, right? When you say, okay, you know, we know you're, immediate thoughts about this. We know your, you know, your conscious beliefs about this. I, I don't say this to patients. I'm saying this, you know, to you and to 
our listeners. Um, if that was sufficient to find a way through your difficulties, if it was sufficient to offer a solution, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be seeking the services of a psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. You're here mm -hmm. because the things that you currently know and understand about yourself have, and the things that you've tried to, you know, to make yourself better, to cure yourself, right? haven't haven't been enough that's why you're here and it's a pretty and it's a pretty rare patient who would take issue with that in many ways it reminds me of one of the going all the way back to freud and the original goal being to make the unconscious conscious is that a reasonable cornerstone of psychodynamic therapy? Um, yes and no. Yes, because what it means to make the unconscious conscious perhaps means something to you and to me. But I think it's very experience distant for you know, most people in the world. It, it's it's too cryptic. It's you know stated in code as if everyone knows what the unconscious means. Oh, I, I would rather say it more directly and more experience in your language. What, what I would say is but because we're human, it's how we're constructed. None of us fully know our own hearts and minds, right? We know certain aspects of our experience. There are other aspects of our experience that we don't know so well or don't know at all. We don't know our hearts and minds fully. The things we don't know can cause terrible difficulties for us. And the more fully we can know ourselves, right, the more whole we can become, the more options we have in life, the more freedom of choice we have, to do things differently. Right? So a lot of thoughts, feelings, behavior occurs relatively automatically. It happens very quickly. And what we say in psychodynamic therapy is, you know, there's more to it. You know, you experience it as, you know, point A, and now point B, this happens. You're doing this or feeling this way or suffering in this way. You know, there's a lot that goes on between point A and point B that you know, we can create some space to, to, to attend to, to notice, to think about, to understand. And when we do this, then things don't have to automatically go from point A to point B, and that's just the way it is. Between point A and point B, we are able to insert understanding, insight and awareness, and therefore choice. B doesn't have to follow from A. Lots of other things could also follow. Right? So things that were previously automatic, which is to say largely outside the realm of choice, you know, intention, volition, begin to come within the realm of, of choice. Right? Right? So when Freud said, uh, you know, the goal is to make, you know, to make the unconscious conscious. 
if we unpack it a bit, what was he really talking about? I think, I think that's what it means. Right? Can we slow things down enough to really notice, right? To really notice all those little junctures and points in, in, you know, our sort of flow of action and activity and awareness and thought. Can we slow things down enough to recognize there are spaces there where there are opportunities to make choices that we previously didn't recognize as choices? Now, there's one more piece to that. Let me say making the unconscious conscious. And this is important. The things we don't know about ourselves are generally manifested in our relationships. The way we can come to know them, to come to recognize things that are unknown, is that they play out in our relationships. So in order to get access to things that operate, you know, sort of outside of our awareness, outside of our attention, that requires a meaningful relationship of two. So meaningful therapy is an ongoing relationship. And to be more specific, what happens is, let me see, the things we're not aware of, the things that are outside of consciousness, they are the patterns that we live out, including and especially the patterns we live out in our relationships, you know, knowingly or unknowingly. We bring our, those patterns with us into this new relationship, the psychotherapy relationship. And, you know, it's automatic. It's not a matter of choice. We begin to recreate our habitual characteristic patterns in the psychotherapy relationship, right? So things that are unknown, that happen outside of our awareness, that happen very automatically, are now manifested in the context of this attachment to this relationship, this meaningful relationship with a new person. And that's where we want them. We want those patterns to come into the therapy relationship because that's where it becomes possible to recognize them, to see them, to put words to them, to understand them, and so create the option, the freedom, to not have to keep repeating the same painful or self-defeating patterns over and over again. Now, to I mean, attach some technical or theoretical language to it, that's what we mean when we say transference. Transference is the person brings their pre-existing established relationship patterns into a new relationship. And if the therapist is skillful and knows, right, understands that and knows how to use that information, you know, what patterns are being recreated here? What patterns is this person drawing me into? Right? This opens up a universe of understanding for us. You know, if the therapist doesn't understand how to work that way, well, it just becomes one more relationship where the patient lives out the same patterns again. Mm. So psychodynamic therapy really is a method for doing that work. Absolutely. It's a way of understanding the relationship, for using the relationship. And that's something that gets talked about a lot even in manualized therapies. But could you perhaps talk a little bit about what, what is the relationship? What does it mean to have a working relationship in psychodynamic therapy? Well, it means therapy? that we as therapists, right, the, the, what we're interested in, the, the person is having difficulties because they are living out certain repetitive patterns. Now, this isn't pathological or healthy. It's simply a, a fact of, of being human. Some people live out patterns that allow for much more, you know, sort of flexibility and freedom and fulfillment, and, you know, 
happiness in life than others. If you're living out patterns that are leading to, you know, suffering, limitation, distress, right, then you've got a problem. But we're all living out different kinds of patterns. We stack the deck by creating a therapy relationship in what we call a, a, a treatment frame where we can, where the patterns, you know, where we make room for those patterns to occur in therapy and where we can really, you know, see them in, in high relief. Well, that requires, uh, uh, you know, that requires some certain basic preconditions for that to happen. One is it needs to be an ongoing relationship without an artificial arbitrary cutoff date because nobody knows how long it's going to take to do the job for this particular person. The other is the meetings have to be regular, consistent, minimum of weekly, right? So that the person knows this is my time. Come hell or high water, you know, my doctor or my therapist will be here, you know, at, on this day, at this time, and the relationship continues and we will continue the discussion. And it doesn't matter if I'm happy or depressed or angry or fed up, or I just told them off in the previous session, which just told them they're a terrible therapist, or I told them I hate them, <laughs> they're still going to be there. Right? And um, so consistent meetings, consistent structure, the therapy needs to be separate and protected from the rest of the patient's life. So that is to say, you can say, think, feel, anything in here it is not going to have consequences for for you outside of here so it has to be absolutely private it has to be absolutely confidential now you put these ingredients and and you know there's a, there's a lot of structure that goes with it the appointments start on time they end on time there's a sense of, of safety in that structure within those parameters the sturdier we that's what we call part of what we call the therapy frame the sturdier that frame is the more consistent and reliable it is the more freedom there is within the frame, right? To bring in, to you know, more fully bring in all, you know, all of you know, the, the full range of our experience, and within that context, things start happening in the relationship between the therapist and the patient. You know, good things, bad things, things happen, events occur. Those events are discussed and understood. And out of that understanding, right? I mean, another way of saying that is we, we, we come in, I, I've been talking about patterns. We, we bring in our relationship patterns. We could say our templates. Out of that understanding comes, you know, number one, you know, freedom from having to relive those same patterns or templates. Number two comes the opportunity to develop different templates, right? That might allow us you know, might allow us to function better in the world and to live lives that are more satisfying and meaningful thank you for that that was a remarkable and very pointed summary that you know the frame the relationship the transference very very clear thank you for that i want to say, i want to ask something the my understanding is that on the psychodynamic side of the fence there is a, there is sort of a disdain for empirical research you know some would say it's irrelevant and that it's, uh, it can't measure the things that we're talking about. Um, and as a result of that, I think it's actually very hard to become what you're talking about, to become a dynamic or, or analytic therapist, because it's not in the universities. And for a lot of people, myself included, it took a lot of training post-formal qualifications. Yes, it does. And is that one of the... 
Is that one of the consequences, do you think? I think it manifests into clinician training, but it also manifests, of course, into the healthcare system itself. Yeah, but we're operating in an environment, in a culture, you know, that wants quick fixes, quick results, that thinks there's a you know magic bullet. We're because we're talking about changing ourselves, we're talking about changing something about who we are as human beings, not just managing a symptom, we're trying to alleviate this or that you know, symptom, you know, as if someone had a, a skin rash. We're talking about changing something fundamental about ourselves that has been making our life harder than it needs to be. We're talking about changing our something in our personality, something in our psychology, something about who, not what we have, this disease or this symptom. We're talking about changing something about who we are. And that really doesn't fit very well in a healthcare system or in a society well, that's looking for you know quick, instant results and thinks there has to be a magic bullet, you know, a magic pill, a magic technique, a particular brand, a particular modality of therapy that can bypass the fundamental truth that the rate-limiting factor in psychological change is people, right? Not, not the intervention, not what you do to them. It takes time be able to change something meaningful about who we are. I mean, think about, you know, let me say, I'm going to do something, teach you something that will change your, your life. Learn a second language. Well, how long does it take to learn a second language? Here, I've got this manualized program, eight weeks. <laughs> you think you're going to be speaking another language in eight weeks? Somebody is selling you snake oil. Suppose you wanted to learn a skill. I mean, I, I'm a skier, you know. Um, you know it, it takes years to get to be good at it. Any sport. We're going to put you on skis and, uh, you know, eight days of skiing. Now you're a skier. Well, no, eight days of skiing and hopefully you can ride the chairlift up and ski down the mountain and have a good time and have some fun and be in control and not get yourself killed or anyone else. <laughs> but... You're just a beginner. And I would say the same is true for, you know, how about learning to play a, a musical instrument? You know, you, you're going to take eight hours of lessons and, you know, you can play the piano. You know, no, you've learned to do a couple of things. You're a beginner. Why would you think that changing something fundamental about who we are, how we function as human beings in the world, why would you think that that could be done in a matter of weeks. I just want to share something with you. A, a few years ago, I went skiing for the first time. You mentioned skiing. It was in Vail. And I, I went with uh, my wife and her friends, and they're very good skiers. And I, I fell down the mountain. And um, I wasn't hurt or anything, but an instructor saw me. And he gave me a week's worth of free lessons. And by the end of that, I was still very much a beginner. That's true. Um, but I just wanted to share that because I know that you like skiing. Are you an instructor yourself? I, I'm actually a certified professional ski instructor, yeah. <laughs> okay, I wonder if it was you. Maybe it was. Whoever it was, thank you very much. I really appreciated it. Uh, Jonathan, we do have to come to a, a bit of a close, but I do want to, to finish with a question you probably get asked, and I think some people in the audience will be wondering. Just a little bit of advice. What are the things? How can you become a psychodynamic psychotherapist? Ah, yes. Right, you asked that. So, so there's three cornerstones of, of training, and I think they all have to, to be there. And, you know, I guess, it, again, it comes back to this is a serious investment and commitment of time. One, you know, one thing is, is 
coursework and study, you know, learning, knowledge. But but in some ways, that's, you know, without the other components, it doesn't go very far. The other component, I think the thing that is absolutely central, is personal psychotherapy or psychoanalysis for the psychotherapist. We're talking about, you know, becoming comfortable navigating the landscape of mental and emotional life, right? We have to learn that landscape. We have to be comfortable with the full range of feelings, experiences, you know, emotional dilemmas. We start to develop that comfort through our own work and our own psychotherapy, right? There's something really, you know, quite disingenuous in the idea that um, you can help somebody else explore their inner world, explore their emotional life, become comfortable and familiar in that territory when the territory is not familiar to us. We've got to do our own work. And the third component of training is what we call clinical supervision. And the word supervision and therapy, as you know, doesn't mean it's it's not the regular definition of you know supervision in the, you know in other contexts is you know you're you're working under somebody you know they're they're monitoring your work supervision in psychotherapy is it's an apprentice system of learning where the person will meet with their their patients and then they'll meet on an ongoing you know weekly or or more often basis with what we call a supervisor but it's really you know a, a teacher and a mentor and they discuss their cases, how to understand it, how to work more effectively, where where are you getting caught up, what are you missing in understanding this person. So those are the the three pillars, personal psychotherapy front and center, an ongoing continuing supervision relationship, and that doesn't end, by the way, when you finish training, that continues for a lifetime if you're serious about your work. We never outgrow the the need for supervision or what might later be called clinical consultation. You know, I get it too. Right? You never outgrow it. Right? And then the third is study, coursework. We've got to put all those three things together. Thank you, Jonathan. You're welcome. It has been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for taking the time. And and thank you for uh, from Clinically Thinking as well. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure too. Great to talk to you. enjoy the show and that you'll join us again soon for another conversation from the wide world of clinical psychology. You can also follow us and interact with our Facebook page. You may like to share feedback, comments or questions about the topic we've just listened to or even leave a suggestion for someone you'd like to hear from in the future. I'm Dr. Lisa Chantler. Thanks for listening. <laughs>